This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Sharper Dungeon Adventures. Einstein in Japan. Emily Cambius. And Direct Verrett. you doing? I'm getting into character to play the new Plain Gia 5e campaign setting. It's about dinosaurs! Well, technically it's a prehistoric fantasy campaign setting, so not just about dinosaurs, but dinosaurs! I don't think you actually play as a dinosaur, but there are a ton of new kinships, subclasses, monsters, factions. I guess it is possible. I'll just check through this massive 380-page Plain Gia setting book and see. Well, okay... Oh, wow, you totally can play as a dinosaur. Playing Gia is a prehistoric fantasy setting for 5e. It's a place of utter wildness where survival is the only law and must be carved from the world by a force of might and magic. Play a saurian with ancestral memories. Pick from a leather wing, hammer tail, sharp fang, or web foot. Indeed, rawr. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe in Playing Gia for 5e. Nothing is as you expect in Playing Gia. Elves are shimmering dreamwalkers. Dwarves are half stone. Humans are beast tamers. Halflings are silent stalkers. Gnomes are filthy scavengers. And dragonborn are just a heartbeat away from their draconic ancestors. The campaign setting book, as well as accessories like the GM screen, adventure soundtrack, and deluxe boxed edition are all available now from Atlas Games. For more, use your tiny flailing arms to type in atlas-games.com slash Plain Gia. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And Robin, here on the gaming hut table, it's paradigmatic. There's miniatures, there's dice, there's maybe some graph paper, maybe some pencils, because we are in that first and perhaps noblest of huts within the gaming hut, the dungeon. Because right. we're talking about your cool new book about the structures of uh, the various adventure types, the Adventure Crucible, available even now from Drive Through RPG, right? Yes, indeed. So we talked about it in general last week and among my many hats, and this suggests a natural series in which we look at each of the structures of the five uh, different sorts of scenarios. And uh, as you've already indicated, the obvious place to start is the structure that started all, which is the dungeon. So first of all, when we're talking about a dungeon, we could be discussing the literal classic D&D slash F20 underground complex where you go down a corridor and you knock down doors and you find who's inside each room and you clear that out. But also that on a structural level, any area-based scenario where the progress of the characters through the story is also their progress through a physical area, uh, and I've sort of referred to this as an area clearance scenario, if you want a more general term, but if you're just going through a bunch of places that are linked together and you are dealing with a thing in each place and that's your adventure, it might be a building, might be a wilderness, could be a spaceship, 
maybe the ruins of a post-apocalyptic city, but whatever it is, if you're going through a series of areas and having encounters and altogether that's your scenario, it's a dungeon. It's an area clearance game. And I think people who have moved past the dungeon, whether they did so quickly or did so after many years, I think tend to underrate its power and why it works exactly. And I think the secret of why it works is sort of an interesting paradox. But having a scenario where you have movement through the plot being literal movement through a space can remains very powerful and effective for those who have not burned out on it, which is the vast majority of current role players. Yeah. And it's great fun. When I was running 13th age, I made sure to every, you know, few adventures put an honest to God, actual dungeon in, in many cases, a real D and D dungeon that I just upgunned and swapped around and turned into a 13th age dungeon. But Absolutely, the fun of exploring, you know, some underground ruin, finding weird monsters in it and fighting them until you got to the boss monster at the bottom. I mean, it, it worked for a reason in 1975. It works for a reason now. It's just powerful, good fun. And as a GM, it's really easy to plan mm-hmm. compared to other more moving partsy type dungeons because really you just need to come up with you know, a number of encounters and they don't really have to have a lot to do with each other. They can reflect the nature of the dungeon. So you don't put a bunch of swamp monsters in a desert dungeon or whatever. But other than that, you are really in a a kind of a catbird seat as the GM. And that means you can focus on the individual encounters a little bit more because you don't really have to worry about how the billiard balls bounce around the rest of the table, because you're really just dealing with that one chamber or that one corridor or that one, you know, forest hex or whatever it is, right? Right. You would say easy to build, easy to run, easy to play Mm -hmm. is enough of a statement on why dungeons work, but we have to drill down into why that is exactly. And there is an imagistic level on which that is very entrancing, right? The stone walls and the oozes and the funguses, that's like a cool set of visuals. And you can attach another cool set of visuals to whatever other area that people are moving through. But on the structural side of things, I think the issue of character control and choice And the illusion thereof are very powerful because when you're in a dungeon, you are never at a loss for what the next thing to do is. You may have a choice of doors or a choice of corridors, but there's always an obvious next thing to do until you get to the very end. And that means also that not only are the players never thinking, oh, gee, what should we do next? But they're also never having a big argument about what to do next, because what to do next is pick this door or that door, pick mm-hmm. that corridor or that corridor, go into that elevator or go down the escalator to the bottom of the mall. And so that is also very simple. And that gives the players a strong sense of control, even though <laughs> in general, they will often wind up going into every room or nearly every room. And very rarely do they have enough information to make a decision about which door is better to go in at any given time. And again, that's part of the point. That's good because it feels like you're choosing, feels like you're in control and the choices are inconsequential. And therefore the choices can become tactical. Do I use my fireball spell 
on uh, this bunch of bugbears or do I wait until the next encounter when I might really need it? And that sort of resource management spending for victory has its own. I mean, that's basically the, the, you know, the, the, the mindset that you built gumshoe around is this, do I spend now or later fun little question, the little gamble that you play with yourself at all times that keeps you feeling in control, even as basically the, you know, the 20 siders are what's really in control because that's what's determining, you know, did you wisely or unwisely use that lightning bolt? Right. So not only are the choices, which door do you open, but then what do you do with your various powers Mm -hmm. when you go through the door and presumably most of the time uh, get into a fight? Mm -hmm. Another reason the dungeon is very strong structurally is that, Premise acceptance is also baked right in, mm-hmm. right? The place is the premise. Do you want to go here and explore this place? And the implied contract is, well, yes, we're going to because the gym, that's the place that the gym has, has laid out. That is the point of being dungeon adventurers is you adventure in a dungeon and why wouldn't you, right? Right. And so on some level, you know, why... Is it fun to be in a dungeon? That question is kind of a tautology. Is it a dungeon is fun because it has dungeon stuff in it? Mm-hmm. But the other thing it has in it, it has the grind for experience points. It has a self-generating reward structure that keeps on going and serves itself, which also never requires the question, why are we doing this? You're doing this in order to get more powerful, to get more stuff, to accumulate more power, to get more stuff. And if you think that's a weak psychological motivation look at the video game industry how many (laughs) games are based like the first hours of gameplay are they're not even fun grinding they're just grinding look look at the post-industrial world in fact yeah now if you want to you can certainly add more emotional stakes onto a dungeon you're not just clearing room after room after room but there's something or some things that you are looking for in there that matter to you so that is a MacGuffin that you can use to affect some positive change in the world you're trying to save somebody you like or care about you have uh you know there's a secret documents you can use to you know thwart the bad guys up top side or whatever it is by doing that paradoxically you do introduce possible level of premise rejection where this well why do i want to stop that war or why do i care about this person which again is ironic that you know adding this extra layer of narrative on top of a dungeon may work very well. It may invest people more deeply in the dungeon, or it might be a distraction from the self-generating fun of a dungeon. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's part of the knowing your players bit is what are they actually looking for? Are they just looking to kill time and or orcs? Then great. If they're looking for a more compelling story, then maybe each of these dungeons is, to pick an example completely at random, underneath a fortress city somewhere on the gateway to India, and you have to clear them out if you want to invade India like the god Heracles told you to. And that is, you know, the dungeons then become in themselves rooms in a greater dungeon, the greater dungeon being the space control game of invading India or in a more conventional F-20 game, it might be the space control game of clearing out this ridge of old orc hills so that the fruited plains below can be uh, lived in in peace by halflings and elves and all the other nice people. Right. Another strength of the dungeon is that you can cut to the fun quite easily. It doesn't require an elaborate setup. You might have the ritual and sometimes quite enjoyable scene of everybody meeting in the tavern to talk to the person in the hat who tells them 
about the marauding centipede creatures and the dungeon that they're issuing from, and then you go there, or you can just cut to you are at the gates of the dungeon, you're ready to go in. And both of those solve a whole lot of heavy lifting and setup that almost every one of the other adventure structures has. And then we get to the sorts of obstacles. And again, these are, you know, all the classic obstacles of uh, basic role playing. So you have your fights. Now, fights will reoccur in almost every one of the other structures to one degree or another. Um, and they work for a reason, which is they present a clear dilemma. The players then have a series of choices to make and, you know, who do they try to hit in the fight and how and what tactics do they adopt? And there are also clear consequences of uh, either winning the fight and then getting the stuff or losing the fight and running away. And also the attritional consequences of uh, which of your limited resources it costs you to win the fight. And also, it's not a puzzle. What's your rooting interest when your character's lives are at stake in a physical battle? Do we even need to specify? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, your rooting interest is you. The best kind of rooting interest. Then you get your traps which again, you can put traps in other structures and you sometimes do, but here is where traps really shine. And again, it's about, you know, what sort of physical toll does it place on us? I think the most interesting trap is one that is a puzzle to solve rather than just something that you make a saving throw and either, you know, pay a tax or not. So if you have decisions to make around that trap, that is how you sharpen the interests that the players have in them. I'm also fond of the trap that acts as a tactical element in a combat so that it's not trap or fight. It's trap and fight. There's bad, you know, uh, troglodytes in the room with the, with the trap and they're trying to set it off and throw you into the pit. And so you have to say, all right, how can I use this as a place to post up and shoot them with longbows or how can i use this to you know go down into the trap and use my feather fall ring to come out the other side and surprise them and if you can blend the trap with the tactical question i think then traps which you know once we all got past the age of, of good old Grimtooth, i feel like a lot of players anyway maybe consider traps are either just a toll booth that you have to go through to get to the good fun stuff or worse yet, that they are a distraction from the good fun stuff because thinking tactically about a fight is, I think, more fun than trying to puzzle out exactly which, you know, nose of the statue to touch or whatever ridiculous nonsense a dungeon trap often is. Yeah, and I think that's the part of a dungeon that can use the most thought in making it fun and interactive and, and having meaningful choices mm -hmm. because, you know, which... Which nose on the statue do I press? That's just random nonsense and it's frustrating. Mm -hmm. But if there's something you can build into it where there's, you know, do I take this risk or that risk? Or, you know, how do we solve this? Or something where you're, you know, your physical problem solving capability. We can do a whole segment on traps. I feel like there's a lot of questions to be asked and thoughts to be had. Yes. Well, all of this stuff can expand out into other things. So if, if beloved listeners, you want to hear more, let us know. And then the third I think underrated obstacle that is sort of central to the uh, dungeon or area clearance is finding stuff. You're in there to look for stuff, and that can also be made interesting. It doesn't just have to be, okay, fight's over, here's a pile of things over here, but that you're looking around for things. You can find ways to make, you know, your search or detect hidden roles ha have something more to it than just making a role. And, you know, getting stuff, even imaginary stuff, is always a positive up note and you know so don't skimp on the finding stuff and 
find ways to make that interesting and fun is another way to sharpen a, a dungeon. And even finding like a secret passage or a hidden oubliette or shaft is fun because it increases the player's sense of tactical mastery over the dungeon that suddenly they do have a, another choice besides open that door, open this door, they can say, ooh, do we go through the secret passage and maybe speed run the dungeon to the dangerous part? Do we feel strong enough for that? Do we feel like we are ready for that? Do we feel like that's tactically in our interest? So a, a good secret passage or secret staircase or whatever is often, you know, a, it's even more fun than you would think it is because in addition to the the joy of having a nugget of secret knowledge, there is a uh, an expansion, uh, briefly at least, usually, of your tactical opportunity within the dungeon. Now, although people do not necessarily expect a dungeon to escalate the way that a, a more traditional narrative does, there is something that is built into you know every dungeon since day one, which is that, that you know there are areas of it that are more dangerous than others that you have to uh, get better at before you can go into or that you want to make sure that you're very fresh going into. And of course, the most obvious thing is, you know, the boss fight at the end. Mm -hmm. But after that, first of all, any fight that becomes unexpectedly tough is the boss fight. The rules may decide for you mm -hmm. uh, what the exciting bit is. Those struggle nights were a boss fight. Oops. Yeah. So it has a built-in escalation, which you can use or not, which is, uh, again, different from all the other uh, structures. And then finally, once you've either dealt with the boss fight and once that happens, you might want to sort of hand wave all of the other remaining encounters or the players may very well out of a sense of compulsive uh, completion want to make sure that they go into every single room, meaning that their choice of which room to go into ultimately didn't matter all that much, but they they still had fun. So there's many interlocking pieces in a dungeon. If you start to look at the obstacles and look at ways to make them sharper and more interesting, the structure, assuming you have a bunch of people who want to do a dungeon, takes care of itself. And that's why, again, it's the prime mover. And it's still probably uh, the one that most people are playing, even as we speak. Yep. And that's for a reason, because it, uh, well, we gave the reasons, but it's a great structure. And as I think we hinted at at the top, it's more than just a hole in the ground full of monsters that if you start looking, I mean, I alluded to the notion of a pattern of dungeons as itself a kind of a mega dungeon, but you can also look at, as you said, you know, wilderness clearance or a haunted house or uh, lots and lots of things are dungeons. I remember the first scenario for top secret, the game of super spies was a dungeon in East Germany where you basically went through this town and spies were in various houses and you shot them and it was, you know, and oh, he, and he has a hundred marks on him. And that was your, <laughs> that was your straight up dungeon, Spreckenhalte Stella. Well, I ironically was translated by them as the stopping and speaking place. But of course, precious little speaking ever went on in old Spreckenhalte Stella. There was a lot of gunplay, as I recall. Right. Well, when we get to a chain of fights, we'll get to something that's uh, more like a spy movie or spy novel as we'd expect it to be. But for the moment, Having uh, covered this dungeon, it's time for us to head back to the surface to see what hut awaits us there.
Tell your friends, warn your enemies, Trail of Cthulhu has invaded the Humble Bundle. As of September 7th, you can snap up the gumshoe game of Eldritch Investigative Horror and its back catalog of cosmically terrifying support material in PDF for a measly 18 bucks. Or dabble like a dilettante with the less generous but still impressive bargains available at the $1 or $10 tiers. This deal, in its various Rugos permutations, includes the core book, by Ken, based on my gumshoe rules. The Keeper's Screen and Resource Book. The Ultimate Mega Campaign, Eternal Lies. Our tribute to classic horror flicks, Shadows Over Filmland. A core scenario anthology, Arkham Detective Tales. Robin's innovative player-driven campaign, The Armitage Files. Ken's tribute to Bibliomania, Bookhounds of London. Our look at surrealists in Paris and the Night Realm, Dreamhounds of Paris. The ever-useful Hideous Creatures Bestiary. The otherworldly Cthulhu City. Out of time, out of space, out of the woods, and that's barely the half of it topped off with... Pulse Pounding Music by James Semple. If you have these already, alert your less forward-thinking fellow scholars. Or, you know, your players. Find it on the Humble Bundle until it faces the fate of all impossibly great deals. Being devoured by Azathoth. The sepia filter and the pops of the newsreel footage tell us that once more, the history hut stands before us. And this time around, it's all set up for the 1920s because an anonymous patron wants to know the secret history of Einstein's 1922 to 1923 trip covering Japan, Palestine, Spain, and other shorter stops. It sounds to me, Ken, uh, having glanced ahead at his itinerary, that there's all sorts of opportunity for secret missionary in what was probably in real life, you know, a bunch of talking to scientists and seeing some sights. So, Ken, tell us all about this exciting Einstein trip. Well, this was Einstein accepting a offer from a relatively new Japanese publishing house, Kaiser Shah, that had done lecture tours uh, the previous years of Bertrand Russell and Margaret Sanger. So obviously they weren't picky, but they wanted Einstein. And after some hard bargaining, he got a really generous offer. 2,000 pounds in uh, 1922 is pretty close to $100,000 American now. So that's why uh, in October of 1922, he gets onto the liner Kitanu Maru, departs Marseille for Japan, and he sails through the Suez Canal, stops off at Colombo in Ceylon, modern Sri Lanka. This was his first experience in what you might call uh, the third world. They didn't call it that then, but it was definitely his first experience in a colonial possession as opposed to a European great power. And so he had a sort of a culture shock. There in Colombo had his sort of native socialist inclinations are, are triggered. He gets back on the boat, sails to Singapore, then Hong Kong. Then in Shanghai, he gets the telegram that says, hey, Dr. Einstein, you won the Nobel, finally. Shame you can't be in Stockholm for the ceremony because you're going to go to Japan. But Einstein was mad at the Nobel Committee for uh, foot dragging ever since 1905. So he probably felt a little bit uh, superior. When he said, yep, sorry, got a business, can't do it. <laughs> got important stuff to do. Exactly. So he gets to Japan on November 17th, drops off in Yokohama, quick trip to Kyoto, then spends most of the rest of the year in Tokyo. He lectures at Kayo University, and it takes four hours for his lecture. 
because they have to translate it, obviously, from German to Japanese. So he'll say a long technical sentence in German, and then some poor schmuck has to sit there and say that. He has to write it down while he's talking and then provide all the technical details. Exactly. Confer with him about certain points. And and, then figure out, you know, what Einstein meant, which is not maybe the job that guy signed up for. And then he lectures at the Youth Assembly Hall, and it's a shorter lecture. And so everyone in the Youth Assembly Hall feels bad because they didn't get the four-hour lecture. So all of the rest of his lectures have to be this long, tiresome methodology. (laughs) Yeah, and I bet he went, oh, man, four hours, that was a lot. I'm going to tighten it up, make it snappy, and Uh people didn't want snappy. Well, they they thought that he was insulting them by doing a shorter lecture. And so then he does a series of talks, mostly for fellow scientists at Tokyo Imperial University, and then he goes around the country, and he's still doing talks, right? He's still doing speeches in Nagoya and Kyoto, Fukuoka. He's in uh, the port city of Moji at the end of the year. He does violin recitals when he doesn't want to talk. He'll just play his violin instead. And uh, he's a little salty in his diary about having, you know, to drag his tail all over Japan and uh, perform like a monkey for people. He wasn't the first one to find out that a speaking tour was perhaps not all it was cracked up to be. Yeah. And I'm sure Elsa kept saying, you catch the check, Albert. We have to do this. But he did like the Japanese people. He thought that they were terrific, not least because the government of Japan had said, this is the most famous person in the world. By God, everyone in Japan will treat him nice. And it was a genuinely giant deal to have Albert Einstein show up at your university. So he's in Japan through the 29th, departs uh, Moji on the Haruna Maru, basically retraces his steps back the other direction. And he's in Port Said in Egypt on February 1st. At which point he then takes a train and goes to the Palestinian Mandate, as it was called at the time, what we now know as Israel. He goes to the town of Lod, which is near where Tel Aviv is. He does see Tel Aviv. He's very impressed by Tel Aviv, this sort of notion of a modern city just being built in the desert. And he's uh, very thrilled with Tel Aviv, less thrilled by Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem, spends most of his time in Jerusalem, and then does day trips all over the uh, area. In Jerusalem, he is also a little salty about the Orthodox Jews, who he sees. He's a non-practicing Jew, but he identifies himself ethnically as a Jew. But he doesn't. that doesn't mean he likes seeing Orthodox people praying at the Wailing Wall. That really depresses him. He much prefers the kibbutz farms and the more modern stuff. All of the uh, Jewish authorities in Palestine are trying to get him to say that he's going to move to Jerusalem. And, of course, they offer him, you know, the presidency of a university there. And he says in his diary that he would feel like a like an exhibit, not like a professor, if he was in Jerusalem. And so he says to them, you know, the heart says yes, but reason says no. And so he gets on the boat, leaves Jerusalem, leaves Port Said, goes to Toulon. And uh, from Toulon, rather than go back to Germany, he uh, takes a train to Barcelona, hangs out in Barcelona for a week, and then goes to Madrid for two weeks more lectures. He meets King Alfonso Thirteenth. I have not found any evidence whether or not he met the emperor when he was in Japan, but I'm sure he met members of the Japanese royal family, which means that it's possible Though, again, I didn't see it written down anywhere that he shook the hand of Hirohito, for example, who at that time was not yet emperor. He was the crown prince and would have been meeting Albert Einstein would have been his job. And then from uh, Madrid, he goes to Zaragoza and then back to Berlin on the train. And that's the end of his trip is March 16th. So he spent a 
good part of a year, about five months, almost half a year, out of his office and not coincidentally away from Germany in 1922 and 23, which turns out to have been a pretty hard time to be a politically aware Jewish professor in Germany. And when he gets back to Berlin, he immediately starts thinking, maybe I don't even want to stay in Berlin. I'd like to go to Holland. But Hitler, you know, tries his putsch and he gets arrested and Einstein says, all right, nothing to worry about. Problem's over. I can settle back and, and do some math. And that is the surface story, if you will, the veil out of Albert Einstein's trip to Asia, Palestine, and Spain. Right. Now, he doesn't strike me as the adventuring type. He's more the NPC who you have to protect yeah. uh, as the player characters on the journey. So he's doing all this stuff, but as the player characters, you get to skip the four-hour lectures and do what? You get to be his advanced man, I guess. Now, it's not that Einstein is not capable of, of doing adventures. He's He's about 41, I think, during this trip, so he's able to do anything. And if the adventure involved violins or sailing or calculating uh, relativity, I guess he'd be your man. But yeah, the, the sort of the secret agentry stuff would have to be, and I assume that since it's a trip to Japan, the secret agents who are there in Einstein's advance party are actually dealing with some sort of looming threat. And the looming threat, of course, in the 1920s in Japan, in real history, was the Black Dragon Society. And I think we've done a segment on them, but they are a, a secret society within the Japanese military and intelligence community that wants to basically promote a war with Russia and China. And they are everywhere and lurking around and not least in the imperial court. So Einstein showing up is maybe your excuse to get into the party is like you're, you know, oh, I'm with Professor Einstein. And they say, OK, they let you in. And then you can hunt down black dragon uh, malefactors deep within Japanese society there. And then the other sorts of adventures that you get up to when you're in Palestine. And this is somewhere that Einstein probably would not have personally been involved with, but obviously you've got the uh, radical Zionist freedom fighters going on, trying to create a independent Israel. And perhaps those are who you're keeping an eye on, because if you're working for the government of uh, Britain, let's pick a government at random. You're not fond of either the black dragon or the Zionists, but it's also possible that you might be under official orders to jolly the black dragon along because a war with Russia might seem like a great idea to the British government in the twenties. And so you may realize in classic spy adventure fashion that uh, you've been given bad orders by your bosses and what do you do and how can Albert Einstein provide you cover for it? Right. Right. And I understand there's an, an Alexer Vitae angle to all of this. There is an Alexer Vitae uh, for a long trip that involved a lot of stuff. There's not a ton of elliptony, but Einstein does see a Fata Morgana off Sumatra on his way to Japan, which is an illusionary city floating above the horizon. So if you are looking for Lemurians, perhaps Einstein's music would uh, and his understanding of higher math would let him be aware of the Lemurian presence. And the Lemurians are obviously in Ceylon. They're obviously in Sumatra, maybe Singapore. And then is the Lemurian presence as far as Japan? And maybe that's what you're investigating. And then basically as he's in Japan and as part of the giant boost that science gets in prestige while he's in Japan, there is 
a medical doctor and psychology professor at Kyushu Imperial University named Yasuaburo Sakaki, who announces the Elixir Vitae in 1924. He's a friend of Einstein, and it uh, involves messing around with your thyroid gland to make you uh, never age. And uh, this guy, as I say, he's a friend of Einstein. He's got all the cred in the world. And when he and his buddies announced the Elixir Vitae, it's a gigantic scandal because the imperial government, A, doesn't want a bunch of people discrediting science when they're trying to, to build it up. And also, if there's an Elixir Vitae, they're supposed to be in charge of it, not some goof in Kyushu. And so they arrest him and his colleagues for illegally providing medical services because, of course, if you're university professor you're not supposed to be out seeing patients as well but everyone apparently in the faculty was doing it because it's how you you know got the nicer car and so they always had something to to, to hang on this guy but if yasuaburo sakaki is developing the elixir vitae based on what he overhears about einstein or what he you know maybe he shows up at one of the lectures is einstein revealing deep alchemical truths when he talks about you know the possibility of transmuting matter by changing its atoms around or the notion that as you move faster and faster, things begin to take on not just a different appearance, but maybe a different nature and that therefore you have another angle for alchemy. So you have an al alchemy angle, you've got Lemurians, you've got the Black Dragon Society. And then in Spain, again, people that are hanging around with Einstein will in a decade be at each other's throats in the Spanish Civil War. So you've got another possible uh, depth charge of geopolitics there. So if you're running a straight up spy game, this can be a, you know, we all see uh, as players in the meta space, the rise of Hitler and fascist Bushido as the real threats. But our bosses, of course, are focused on Lenin and uh, and the uh, Irgun instead of the proper danger. And that's the tension that would uh, maybe inform that, if even if it's a, just a straight spy story. Well, now that we've plotted a, a pretty good little uh, spy campaign with uh, a very cool NPC, it's time for us to uh, see what awaits us on the other side of this here commercial. The Best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Clear the treacherous maze that endangers this podcast by joining a party of Patreon backers, including... Philip Masters! Ethan, Mr. E. Scootover! Jack Ulick! Michael Curtis! And Mike Merles! 
the soft susurrus of the air conditioner and the echoing quality of our voices tell you that once more, we're doing a Gen Con-based segment of Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And today, Ken and Robin are talking not just to someone else, but to Emily Cambius, game designer and uh, one of my players in my Wednesday game. I'll just put it right out there. Emily, your newest game is Morrigan. Uh, you've also got a game based on the Baroness Orcsy Old Man in the Corner stories, and one on being tough dames in uh, the Chicago mob, or some other lesser mob, I suppose. You could play it in, I don't care, what other mobs? Toledo. Toledo, yeah, let's pick Toledo, jerks. That's a lot of stuff. You're you're kind of going all over. Is this a young artist finding their voice, or are you a polymath? Are you the new Leonardo da Vinci, and we'll all be reading your backwards diaries in 500 years? <laughs> um, hello. <laughs> I, uh, We're way past hello, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if uh, Leonardo da Vinci is the way to go. Maybe more along the lines of like uh, an Alexander Pope. Alexander Pope. Just two couplets of mean, but on any topic. Yeah, exactly. Right. I think that I'm interested in a lot of stuff. And I think that it's better to make a lot of weird small stuff about things you're interested in rather than trying to force a lot of big stuff out of things you're not interested in. Yeah, that's probably good advice for anyone who's making games at any stage of their career. Uh, Certainly now with the market fragmented and everything else going on. Is your goal to keep making weird stuff until something catches fire? Is it to build to making bigger and more elaborate things that catch your interest? What, what, where, where are you seeing Emily Cambius's game design career? Or is there a direction? Is it just a lot of stuff you're doing? So I think that the there's sort of two answers to that right so with every creator that's what we're going to call it there's a certain element of you've got to try a lot of different stuff and go in a lot of different directions because that's how you find something that will catch people's interest and you know catch fire as you say but also now i'm definitely working on some sort of longer term larger projects i'm making a game based on the story and history of the children's opera Brindabar, which uh, is a very long-term endeavor that takes a lot of research and a lot of uh, planning. And so there's a certain element of, you know, the stuff that I'm putting out now is small scale because that's what can come out now. And the longer scale stuff has simply been percolating slowly towards the front. So I guess my role in some of these interviews is to say, back up. (laughs) Give us some basics. Ken rattled through a whole bunch of your games. Tell us about your games, Emily. I would love to. I'd say that there's sort of three elements that keep cropping up again and again. I'm very interested in historicity, you know, specifically looking at the past and playing through the past. I think that's a really interesting way of examining history and um, thinking about being someone you're not. You know, sort of putting yourself in a time and space that that could be very alien. Also, I'm very interested in a certain element of LARPiness, I guess, more so than crunchiness, although uh, I do enjoy a bit of crunch. And so I think sort of a slightly more theatrical style is something that I look for in, in games, both in my own writing and in playing. Did I say three things? You did? Okay. <laughs> so tell us about one of your specific games and what uh, that plays like. Okay. So, for example, in... Uh, in Morrigan, 
you play one of three archetypes of the same woman's soul that is taken from different worlds and placed in a sort of singular mental state. Uh, that mental state is very inspired by a literal place. It's very inspired by the movie The Cell, if you've ever seen that. And overall, the play is very focused on what would happen if three different versions of you, who all hated each other, uh, were forced to work together. And so there are three different players playing those different... Yes. And how do you reach an end state in the game? So there's a certain element of uh, sort of point buying, of course, uh, in which if you have, uh, you know, you can, you have abilities in which you can spend points and uh, get points back, etc. And at the end of the game, if you have a certain number of points, then you are either, um, you've, you've fixed yourself, congratulations, your soul is whole, or you've whiffed it, you're a shattered husk of yourself and there's nothing you can do. The game that I kind of compare it to is Fiasco, where yes. you have this ongoing story, and then at the end there's a little bit of an epilogue that says, oh, look at that, you've survived your own stupidity and ruin, or, oh, look at that, your stupidity and ruin has finally brought you completely low. And that it's the sort of combination of a, a mechanical, very mechanical quality in Fiasco with the you know upwelling story-forward narrative qualities. And I think that that's one of the things about Morgan that makes it super interesting and I, I think is really going to catch a lot of people's attention. Uh, what about Tough Broads? Let's talk about that. That's sort of the almost the flip side of this, although there's still, I guess, some quality of female kicking people hard. That's true. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, yeah, so that was my first game uh, that I put out, and uh, it's very much meant to be played in one session, and you play a group of women who have been wronged by their mobster boyfriends, and you come together to um, get back at them and hopefully steal a lot of money. And uh, where I'd say the Morgan focuses on, you know, archetypes and playing very sort of inwardly, the, that game is all about very quick action. Just it's meant for a game master to be able to roll up in literally an hour, skim through the text and say, okay, we can play right away. Um, that was a game that was very inspired by reading the book Last Call, which is all about prohibition, and I thought, you know what, I bet this could be a pretty good game. Not Tim Powers' Last Call, a different Last Call. A different Last Call by Daniel Ockrent. So where do you, uh, as an emerging designer, uh, looking at the role-playing space today, uh, what does it look like to you? Because it's very different than when Ken and I started out, and, and how, how are you pure going mammoths? About, yeah, pure mammoths. Uh, so how are you going about finding the Emboli Cambia-style spot that you're going to be slotting into? I mean, I think that the major thing about gaming right now is that there's such a wide variety of spaces that people occupy. I mean, especially right now, people are moving rapidly into a lot of different platforms and places all at once. And so in some ways, it's very easy to um, meet someone on uh, a website or follow someone on itch or um, go in any convention that you want to and say, hey, you know, I'm interested in talking with you. I'm interested in finding your games. And in other ways, it's extremely difficult to sort of sort through the vast morass of games that have suddenly exploded into the 
public eye. It's very exciting, honestly. I think that it's really cool that I can go on a, a platform like Itch and, you know, sort through literally thousands upon thousands of games that are really interesting and very small scale. On the other hand, I sometimes feel like it's overwhelming. <laughs> so I, I know that you're also an, an avid scholar of natural history. So is this a, a speciation event that we're suddenly seeing where new ecological niches have opened up and different species are coming to occupy them? I think it's a great way to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, especially with the indie movement, I'd say that there's so many different sudden niches that are opening up and people that are interested in filling them that there's pretty much... I, th- I have said to people that if you are interested in gaming right now is the best time to start because there's literally going to be a game for you no matter what you're interested in. And I think that that's true maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but is even truer now. You know, there's been a bit of a Cambrian explosion. One of the games that you're involved in that is not your game, but is, I want to say, sort of on a different lobe of the space is that you are a regular participant in a uh, professor at University of Chicago, Ada Palmer, basically does a LARP about the papal election. And she does it every year as part of a class. And you are sort of a co-GM, NPC participant. And that sort of academic uh, modeling, I guess is what they call it, if they want tenure, is one thing. But with people like uh, Ada Palmer, it very much glops over into our spot and our space. Do you think that as our generation, or more likely your generation, grows up, is part of this gaming can be anything, are you going to recolonize academia with things like that? To shove those uh, old fuddy-duddies out of the way? What's, what's your sense of that particular interface? Because when I think of educational gaming, um, you know, my, my skin crawls. But obviously, I'm from a different educational establishment, uh, even though we went to the same university. Yeah, so that game has a literal army of letter writers, in which I am one. And the various letter writers write letters to all of the students who play in this. And the goal is that if anyone writes anyone a letter, they will get a reply. And sometimes that means that they get they can write to Leonardo da Vinci, or sometimes it means they can write to a random cook in the kitchens, and they'll get a reply. Or they can write to the sphere of Jupiter. They can. Yeah. <laughs> they can, a, they can ma- write to magical entities and <laughs> get replies. So it's a mass-scale distributed deep profundus. Yeah, basically, except around a historical point as opposed to about trying to drive your, each other crazy with fully adieu. I'd say that that has been a very interesting experience um, being a letter writer for that because it does mean that I get to see the sort of experience of a lot of students as a volunteer in this which is that a lot of students, for a lot of students that's their sort of first LARPing experience and you know it's it's quite intense, it takes a lot of time but I also think that I think that there's a interesting new distinction in role-playing games being used in educational settings. I think in the past, when I remember doing like uh, historical reenactment type things in grade school, there was this sort of element of you put on costumes and you sort of read through a script and that is the experience. But I think that role-playing games being used 
educationally specifically now, there's actually a lot more of like a actual LARPing experience, which I think is very cool. You know, you might put on a costume and you might have a small script that you sort of inspire yourself from, but a lot of it is becoming much more you are playing this person and you are really trying to put yourself in their shoes and actually live their life as they would have, which is, again, one of the reasons I'm so interested in sort of historicity and how that comes through in gameplay. So, Emily, where do people find your stuff? On itch. Uh, you can also go to my website, emilycambius.com, uh, which has a link to my itch page. And on itch, I am simply Emily Cambius. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today. Thank you. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlath Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to pause at the landing and wave. To the king of the fire salamanders, he's going to wave back because he's just that kind of painted salamander. We're going to head on in to the parlor of the consulting occultist, where somewhat rarely for him, due to a question from beloved patron backer Hyperlexic, we're going to talk about someone who's operating today and very much in the news. And this is a fellow named Durek Verret, and he is a supplier of woo to the Hollywood stars. He's a self-styled shaman, and he's the fiancé of Princess Martha Louise, who's fourth in line to the Norwegian throne. But because of her association with him as to step down from all of her official duties, because it turns out he's, he's, uh, he's kind of a piece of work. The thing that interests Hyperlexic was that he takes the whole reptoid thing, the whole David Icke horrible nonsense, and turns it on his head and claims among many other lineages and reasons why he is magical, that he is a reptilian, but he says he's a good reptilian. Yeah, he is, on the one hand, the exactly basic mesmerist, going all the way back to our buddy Franz Mesmer, and that involves getting excitable rich ladies and touching them inappropriately and charging them a huge amount of money for it. And that that plan worked in 1775, and it works in 2023. It's an all-timer, and 
you know, really the only hard part is getting access to rich ladies. And uh, that, I guess, is why you spend all that time off with various shamans in our time. Right. Well, he's certainly a hustler and has combined his own line of patter with a bunch of stuff syncretically grabbed from all sorts of other New Age woo. Yeah. And the most interesting part of that is his uh, sort of inverse version of the Reptide story. But he began uh, not as Durek Verrett, Ken, but as... Derek David Verrett and had a bit of trouble in his youth. He did. Um, he was born in 74 in Sacramento. So he is one of our occult figures that is now younger than me. So I don't know what that means. But anyway, this is a moment. His shamanic gifts manifested at age five, he said. He apparently, he came from a, a family of divorce. He went with his dad. His dad wanted a boy to grow up and be respectable. He's a black kid in basically a white neighborhood in the Bay Area. So he's got all of that going on. And then also he's acting out or perhaps his shamanic gifts are manifesting. Hard to say either way, but his dad and he do not see eye to eye. He engages in a great deal of teenage rebellion to the point that he burns down a house in 1991 where he and his buddies are having a party and he goes to juvenile detention, serves one year of a five-year sentence and comes out and says, well, I'm not doing that again. I'm going to be a grifter, not a uh, arsonist. And moves on with his life. He's a good-looking guy. He's, he's good-looking now. He must have been amazing-looking when he was in his 20s. But he becomes a model. And he, you know, also, you know, starts figuring out what kind of grift he can work. So he decides he's a shaman officially at that point. In a wild uh, sort of shamanry moment, you know, how shamans are supposed to die and go to the afterlife and get their gifts and come back. Well, that happens to him. He dies of kidney failure in 2002. He's clinically dead. Now, that's what I call committing to the bit. It is committing to the bit. And he comes out of it. And if one were inclined to have sympathy for Durak Verrett, which I am not because he is a piece of work, this is where you would have sympathy for him. Because if you go through clinical death and you're already off on the woo spectrum and you come back, it is hard to be angry at the guy saying, well, I'm going to triple down on the woo. But that's what he does. He goes and studies even more shamanry. The list of places that he claims to have studied is is long and dignified. And it includes, you know, the, the noble Lakota and the West African Oyo and uh, all manner of places that I'm not sure necessarily have shamanism. But sure enough, his ancestry is West Indian and Norwegian. And he begins to sort of explore that as well. And he marries a lady from Czech Republic, Zaneta Marzlokova, in 2005. And apparently she gets wise to his grift. And so he turns her into the immigration and says, she's in the country illegally. My wife, get her. And so <laughs> yeah, she goes, that's what you call an ugly divorce. Right that there. is an ugly divorce. In 2014, he changes his name to Durek Verrett and graduates from sort of running his own little uh, sex cults to being the shaman to the stars. He picks up Gwyneth Paltrow as a client, Mindy Kaling, Rosario Dawson, Nina Dobrev. As I say, nice work if you can get it, Franz Anton Mesmer. Yes, yeah, so this this is always the bummer part. It's like, no, not Mindy Kaling, not Chris Pine. No, not Rosario Dawson. I mean, Gwyneth. We've, Gwyneth, is, know, Gwyneth, we know, Gwyneth but... is a sunk cost at yeah. some level. And if it weren't for him, it was going to be somebody else. And this is, I think, what we have to say with a heavy heart about Princess Martha Louise 
of Norway, who he meets in 2019 when he is apparently on tour for his book Spirit Hacking, which is a mess. Right. It originally had a big publisher, and then the big publisher looked at looked what was at the in inside of the, the book claims, <laughs> and then it has a small publisher, including you know quite irresponsible claims about cancer, which we'll get to in a bit. Yeah. So anyway, Princess Martha Louise is uh, three years older than him, so it's you know obviously perfectly fine. No one is taking advantage of anyone. Well, I, I, well, I guess. it should be said though that yeah. several of his former lovers say that he was emotionally abusive toward them and maintains a cult-like control. Yes, and is a over horrible the people human in being. his circle. Right. So, yeah, and he never lets her leave his sight, or rarely lets him leave his sight, and almost always has to be in physical contact with her. So right. I'm not sure we want to predict how the story is going to come out. Right. Later. Well, they had to leave each other's sight during lockdown. It turned out yeah. that was a situation, but anyway, princess Martha was an angel contactee from way back. And in 2007 started an alternative therapy called Astarte education named after the Phoenician goddess Astarte. And so she's, so a, she was well into all the new age stuff before he comes along. Yes. She was well into all the new age woo. And because she was charging for therapy, that's, why she had to step back from being officially a royal because you're not allowed to go into business if you're a royal in most european monarchies because it's a it's a bad look and so she's still in line for the throne she's now fourth she was third in line when she was born but someone rushed out and had another boy to make sure to, to move her down the line right she married a guy named ari ben who seems to have been a relatively blameless author and a painter, artist, generally in Norway, a commoner, no real background of any kind of weirdness. They divorced in 2017, maybe because of all the angeling. Who can say? She has three kids. And then after she met Durek Verat, Ari Ben killed himself in 2019. And that was another big shock to the couple because, you know, that's bad for your shamanry if that kind of negative energy is happening. And also, it really upset the princess. And so you can't have that. If your princess meal ticket is getting upset, that's not a good look. But he proposed marriage to her in June of 2022 with a ring that he had designed in Viking motifs. Gwyneth Paltrow signed off on the ring, said it was lovely. And so the king of Norway, I guess, playing a bad hand well, said, all right, make sure you have career prospects if you're going to marry my daughter, because there's no Norwegian government money in it for you. And that's where we are. That's the story right now. He sells medallions to cure cancer or cure COVID. If you're in a medallion curing business, he has awful things to say, as do many of the new age and alternative medicine people about disease being something that you will into yourself. It's sort of, yes. he says children choose to get cancer. Yeah. Well, I, I think he says everyone chooses to get cancer, but also children. And it's that sort of Christian scientist, new thought, the mind is more powerful than the body that we talked about with chiropractic way back in the old days. And so, um, uh, not that way back, actually. Right. The agreement that he makes you sign, if you're going to do one of his $1,000 readings, has some interesting clauses in it. You want to read all the fine print. It goes into quite a lot of detail about what sexual advances you're not allowed to make on him, because he claims that uh, women do that to him all the time. But on the other hand, they may have to disrobe, and he have, may have to give them a shamanic version of a gynecological examination, because mm -hmm. uh, one of the big problems he diagnoses is that if you have casual sex, that as we all know, spirits enter you and then he has to like charge you to, to exercise them. Yep. And uh, he calls his uh, followers the Liddy Committee, 
uh, because they are lit. They are, I guess, lit from uh, within. And as previously mentioned, there's definitely accounts of cult control psychology yes. that he exercises on them. By his various exes in no small part. Yeah, it's not a good look. Again, I don't know as much about Mesmer's cult behavior, but one imagines that Mesmer kept it on a maybe a little higher level. This is pretty dangerous and bad in a lot of ways. So if you are thinking, would I like to date Durak Verrett despite the fact that he is engaged to a princess? The answer is no, you do not. Think twice about it. And he is uh, still bouncing around. He gets ridiculously positive profiles in like Vanity Fair magazine. Well, that wasn't so positive. <laughs> well, I mean, some some are more positive than others. Yeah. And, and, and the words, you know. The word charlatan was not as clear in that profile as it is in, say, the Wikipedia article. And as you say, Robin, let's stop uh, dancing around it. He says that he is a reptoid, a reptilian, but he's half reptilian, half Andromedan, which I think is the interesting thing. First of all, I am not a million percent sure how you are a reptilian and an Andromedan and a third or sixth generation shaman. So... I, I feel like at some point there's way too much DNA in you. Right. Well, apparently this guy has a, a very entrancing line of patter that he just sort of spins out. And it sounds like he doesn't know where his sentences are going. Mm -hmm. So maybe he's not always keeping his story straight right. while he's mesmerizing the Liddy committee with uh, tales of his various contradictory ancestries. Yeah. And the Andromedans, I think you can be reincarnated as an Andromedan. An Andromedan can walk into you. Uh, according to the lore. And Andromedans, by the way, are blue or violet aliens. They look kind of like greys, but they're sort of like half gray, half Nordic. If you imagine a gray with a beautiful St. Germain type yeah. face. Oh, well, maybe they met over a kombucha. That's a, it, it, it could have been. No, it could have been a kombucha situation. And, and so the, um, uh, Andromedans are full of the, the blue or indigo energy. And that's maybe another stream of his woo is, is coming off of that. And then the reptilian part, I feel like is, a little bit of, you know, uh, claiming outsider status that, you know, everyone says the reptoids are bad, man, but you know what? I'm a reptoid and it's pretty cool. I'm uh, I'm a dangerous, Byronic reptoid, not one of those lame loser reptoids that you read about. Right. He's also said that he's faced considerable racism in Norway, to which... And uh, in California, in fairness, which I believe, California. <laughs> of course. Well, he says he'd never faced racism like he did in Norway. Various black and brown Norwegians have pointed out that Yes, you probably are encountering that, but there's other reasons why people yeah. are hostile toward you. Yes, that you're a weirdo. Yeah. And he's, you know, obviously faced heavy criticism throughout his career and where he's gone. So I think that a fictionalized version of him would be either the character who seems to be the uh, source of the badness, but is too obviously so to actually be the bad guy in your but scenario. But he's the spore, not the actual villain. Right. But in a more real life approach, you know, if you did a drama system game about wealthy Hollywood people in an occult orbit, uh, he might well be one of the uh, less savory characters involved in that. Yeah, he's definitely, you know, kissing cousins to the NXVM people. You know, he just... He took the left-hand path, not the right-hand path, I guess, is what happened with him. Well, now that we suggested a number of uh, scenario hooks, we can exit this podcast for yet another week, but we'll be back a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Make sure we can continue to afford Alexer Vitae for this podcast 
by joining such well-stocked backers as Oli Teufenen, The Molten Sulfur Blog, Ginge, Randy Shep, and Ryan Lassiter. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Present the gray alien point of view with our latest design. Nope, still not us. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>